Hey, welcome to Seacoast this weekend. We're glad that you're here. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now from an off-site campus on the internet. Uh, maybe you're working out listening to a podcast. Wherever you are, uh, we're glad that you're uh, along uh, for the ride. Hey, let me, uh, let, let me ask you a question. Have you discovered uh, in life that there are some things that are great in theory, but they're considerably harder in practice? Have you figured that out? I call it the ideal uh, versus the real. When the ideal, you know, it looks great, and man, I want to go for it, but when you get into it, and the real is just a whole lot harder than you thought it would be. Let me give you some examples. Uh, you ever go, uh, like Christmas time or birthday, you know, you're shopping for your kids, and there is a box, and it's something they really want, and on the box it says, some assembly required. <laughs> That's the ideal. Can I tell you what the real is? The real is losing your Christianity and several of your friends in the process of doing the sum assembly, the difference between the ideal and the real. Or maybe it's, 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 it's in romance. The, the ideal in romance is the, the, the finale show of The Bachelor, you know? That's the idea. I mean, uh, you know, the soft lighting and the limousine and the flowers and the, you know, the, the impeccable grooming and the clothing and all, and, and all of that. That's, that's the ideal. What's the real in romance? It's uh, Jerry Seinfeld's new show called The Marriage Ref. You know? <laughs> Moves from the ideal to the real. How about, how about in, in, uh, in motherhood? You know, the ideal is the Ann Gettys pictures, you know? That, that's what your kids are going to be and just kind of, you know, everything's softened and it's beautiful and you, you know the deal. That's the ideal. What's the real? It's Bart Simpson, you know? <laughs> sometimes, it turns, sometimes it turns out that way. And You know, in life, whenever you're faced with, uh, you, you think about the ideal and you're faced with the real, oftentimes it's easy to become cynical after the real pops um, the ideal balloon a few times. Uh, someone said idealism is what precedes experience, and cynicism is what follows. That's probably true, isn't it? Somebody else said a cynic is a man who, when he smells flowers, looks around for a coffin. <laughs> Do you know anybody like that? Peggy Noonan said it like this. She said, you know, cynicism is not realistic and tough. It's unrealistic and kind of cowardly because it means that you don't have to try. You don't want to be a cynic. There's a better way, and that's this. You learn to balance these two, uh, these two concepts. You learn to balance the ideal and the real. You hold on to one, the ideal, while learning to live by faith in the other one, and that's the real. What we're going to do this weekend is I want to look at Acts chapter 16. And I want to look at it in light of these two realities because I think uh, that there are maybe two or three concepts that we can get or scenarios where you can see um, how important it is to balance the ideal and the real at the same time. Last week we uh, studied the near short-circuiting of the new Christian movement because of a lack of unity on one issue. What was the issue? How Jewish do you have to be in order to be a follower of Christ. And so as we read it and we studied, we found that with great, uh, you know, with much talk and debate and prayer, uh, they avert a church split and come up with just a genius solution. 
And then everybody lives happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. That's the ideal. What's the real? The two principal architects of the peace plan, Paul and Barnabas, have a, a regular a mixed martial arts you know, throwdown at the end of the chapter, and then they split and go their separate ways. And so what I want to do is I, I just want to take a look at it, and let's see what we can learn, how we can understand Acts 16 in light of the real and the ideal. Before we get to Acts 16... I think it would be good to wrap up Acts 15 because that's kind of where the whole situation in Acts 16 starts. And so let's take a look. Acts 15, I'm going to read some scripture. Some of it you can follow along with in your outline sheet. I've got quite a bit of scripture. Some of it uh, uh, will not be. It says, uh, Acts 15:36 says, After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return to each city where we previously preached the word of, of the Lord to see how the new believers are getting along. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly. Since John Mark had deserted them in uh, another city and had not shared in their work, in fact, their disagreement over this was so sharp that they separated. I mean, it's just, you know, a few words, but I mean, we're talking about a major, major fight here. John Mark uh, was kind of one of the guys that assisted him in a previous trip. Uh, it seems that he was actually a cousin of Barnabas, and uh, he deserted. He left them. In fact, he left before the going got tough. He left pretty early in the journey, and Paul says, we're not taking him. Barnabas says, yes, we are, and evidently there's this brouhaha. You know, I don't know who tapped out first, but it was a serious situation, and they decided, we're going to split. And so Barnabas took John Mark with him, and he sailed for Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas, and the believers sent them off, entrusting them Uh, to the Lord's grace. And so they traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia, and they strengthened the church there. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about three principles, or actually three scenarios, and then what what we can learn from the scenarios in learning to balance the real and the ideal. Here's the first one. The ideal is this. Christians should always live together in unity. That's the ideal. I mean, that's what Jesus prayed for, wasn't it? I mean, in his last session with the disciples, before he goes and he gives his life willingly for our salvation, in John 17 and verse 23, he's praying for them. And he prays to the Father and he says this, May they, and who's they? That's Christians, that's believers, that's the ones who were gathered, and that's you here in this auditorium and in any auditorium you happen to be in. He says that they may be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's the ideal. Paul himself said it in Romans 15 and verse 5 says, May God who gives patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other, each with the attitude of Christ Jesus toward the other. He says if we have Christ's attitude, then the ideal is we ought to live in not just a little bit of harmony, but we ought to live in complete harmony with one another. And then in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Josh taught us how to do that last week in the message on unity. He said, Keep your essentialist. Remember the three lists? 
you know, our, our preferences and our convictions and our essentials. He said, keep your essential list small and then watch for conviction creep as it kind of goes over into the essentials and we begin to argue about things and make absolutes about things that really there's room for argument in. And so he talked to us about that. The ideal is Christians should live together in unity. But here's the real deal. Sometimes even close friends go their separate ways. We've all seen it, haven't we? When two Christian friends who were absolutely inseparable, maybe they grew up together in church or they became roommates in college or maybe they were a part of a small group. And man, these two went everywhere together. And now something has happened. And uh, they don't even talk to each other. They might not even go to the same church because the other is in the church. Or maybe it's... uh, you know, two guys, two girls, whatever, a, a group of friends who get together and they say, you know what, let's start a business together. Wouldn't it be great to have a business where we have Christian values that kind of undergird it? That we're on the same page and we're going the same direction and so they launch out and they start together and something happens. And maybe even gets legal. And pretty soon they're going their own way and there's hard feelings all the way around. Or maybe it's a Christian couple. And uh, they've committed their lives to Christ. They've committed their marriage to Christ. They have Christian kids. They go to a small group. They hit a bumpy patch in their marriage, and it leads to several bumpy patches. And rather than putting it together, they separate. And maybe even they divorce. You know, this is uncomfortable stuff to even talk about. But you know what? Um, It happens. It's not supposed to, but it does. In fact, I don't like the end of Acts 15. Are there some parts of Scripture you don't like? I mean, let's be honest. Are there some parts of Scripture you go, man, I wish that wasn't in there. This is one of those. I don't like how Acts 15 ends. You know, Paul and Barnabas, leaders in the church, and they're having it out. I want to say, guys, work it out, will you? If not for your sake, work it out for people like me 2,000 years later who've got to teach Christian principles to a church, to groups of people who it's very easy to separate. That's why Paul said, you know, make every effort to keep the bonds of peace and it's easy to separate. And here we've got two leaders who, who separate. You know, one good thing is that the Bible don't doesn't hide the truth. You know, if I'm Paul, you know, Luke's writing this and Luke is kind of following around with Paul. Paul's kind of his mentor and, and he kind of has consigned him to do this. If I'm Paul, I say to Luke, hey, how about we leave that part out, you know? But they don't because the Bible is the original no-spin zone. Did you know that? It's all there. It's all there for us to see and to learn from. Well, here's some things to keep in mind. When relationally, the real doesn't match the ideal. First thing you need to remember is that there will always be consequences. There will always be consequences. When the real doesn't match the ideal, there will always be consequences. It might be financial consequences when two people separate, when a marriage comes apart, when businesses, uh, uh, Christian business people separate. There there may be financial, there may be spiritual uh, consequences. There's almost always relational consequences. I was recently talking to one of our uh, pastors who... It does a lot in helping uh, marriages that are having a hard time come together. And uh, in fact, let me just a little commercial here. If, if you're in a marriage and, uh, and you're hit, hit a bumpy spot, don't call it quits until you give us a chance. 
Will you do that? Because the stakes are high. Relationally, they're high. And so we were sitting down and we were talking about it. And he said, you know, oftentimes, oftentimes, the trouble that a marriage has today is a spinoff of challenges that their parents and their parents' marriage had that they never dealt with it or they didn't do it in right ways or, or maybe they, you know, they just decided, you know, we're going we're to do our own thing and the kids are going to be okay. And you know what? Oftentimes they're not. And oftentimes it doesn't show up for a long time because there are consequences when the real doesn't match the ideal. Oftentimes friends take, take sides. I want to challenge you, if you're in a situation like that and you've got a Christian couple going through something or you know of a Christian couple, maybe they're, you know, uh, somebody in your small group or in the church or maybe they're, somehow you know them, be careful about taking sides. Be careful about jumping in and judging and saying, boy, I can't believe he did or she did or whatever. You don't have all the facts. Only God has the facts and it doesn't really help in the reconciliation process. But there are always consequences. Second thing to remember about uh, when the real doesn't match the ideal relationally is that um, it's, it's never right to trash one another. It's never right to trash one another. I sat down not too long ago with two Christian businessmen, both great guys, and they had come to an impasse, an area that they didn't agree. And so they each sat down and they presented their case. And they're just, we just couldn't find agreement. We agreed that, you know, um, there wasn't real sin involved in the issue. There was just two guys that saw life from totally different points of view. And so they reluctantly agreed to disagree and to hopefully do it agreeably. Because of the nature of the agreement and business or disagreement and all business and all how it is, now they find themselves in competition with each other. And so uh, as we sat down, I said, guys, there's just one thing I want you to remember, and I'm going to hold you accountable on this. You cannot trash each other. You may not agree, but it doesn't give you the right to question each other's character and to go to other people and make your case because the kingdom of God in others is more important than whatever that you can't agree on. In this situation with Paul and Barnabas, if you read on through the New Testament, uh, Paul mentions Barnabas three or four more times, and he never, ever calls his character into question. He never uses an opportunity to trash Barnabas. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only for what is uh, helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Powerful verse. The only thing that's to come out of our mouth is is what helps others. Never is there to be unwholesome talk. You know what? That applies to any relationship in your life that starts with an ex, okay? Whether that's an an ex-spouse, husband or wife, an ex-friend, an ex-business partner, the only thing we say are things that are helpful and that will build others up, them their friends, your kids, whoever's involved. So never, ever trash someone when the real doesn't match the ideal. And here's the third uh, thing to remember about that relationally is this, is that God can change the end of the story. See, just because you don't see eye to eye today, never rule out the idea that you may walk shoulder to shoulder 
tomorrow. You know, usually, how many of you would agree it's better to build bridges than burn bridges? Never burn bridges if you can. But here's the truth. Even if you've burned a bridge, God is able to take burned out bridges and make something useful out of it. In this story, they divided over a guy named John Mark who evidently Paul didn't feel like was worthy of going with them on their missionary journey this time. Well, if you kind of fast forward a little bit, and you find Paul a little bit more mature in his faith, a little bit older uh, as, as an apostle and a, kind of a father of the church, and he finds himself uh, in a prison one day, kind of a house arrest, and uh, he says this uh, to Timothy. He said, you know what? Only Luke is with me. Why don't you do this? Why don't you bring Mark? This is the same John Mark that he said to Barnabas, I don't, I don't want him on our team. Paul says, why don't you bring him with you when you come? Because he will be helpful for me. I love that scripture. That says they reconciled. That says that, that they came to a place where God rebuilt the bridge that had been burned. So the first reality of life is this. Friends don't always agree. But uh, let's learn some things from it. Here, here's the second one. The ideal is this. God has a clear path for your life. you believe that? God has a purpose for you. And a clear, we, we teach that all the time. One of my favorite scriptures is Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, it says it like this. Uh, let's read this one out loud. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, God knows His plans for you and me. God has works that before the foundations of the earth, before you and I were born, He's got some stuff for us to do. He's got a path for us to walk on. Now, my, my personality says, let's get her done. You know, Let, let's figure out the path. Let's head to the, the shortest way that we can get to it. And let's just get her done. Well, see, that's the ideal. Here's, here's the, the real. The real deal is this. Sometimes God's path is found through a series of closed doors. Does anybody have a testimony on that? I mean, you read the story of Paul, and it seems like Paul is... Always, you know, on his way there. I, I want to go here, but this is where I am. In fact, you, if you study the story, and we will by the end of Acts, uh, one of Paul's great goals was to go back to Rome. I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. Well, he's never very far from Rome, but he, but he never can get there until he finally does. And then when he does, he gets his head cut off. So I'm not sure that, that was the best, best place to go. But you know what? The, the, the real sometimes is the fact that God guides us and leads us on the path, kind of on a, uh, a circuitous, is that a word? A circuitous route uh, that's filled with lots of closed doors. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, um, they take off and they go through a little town and they pick up Timothy uh, to become Paul's protege who replaces John Mark. And then in verse 6, it says, next Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had told them not to go into the province of Asia at that time. They wanted to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit told them no. 
Then coming to the borders of Mycenae, they headed for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not let them go. Closed doors. Evidently, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus uh, because it was kind of the city. It was the attractive city. It was, it was in his mind, the, probably the best place for the gospel to go out. It was, it was a, a, a city that was a, a destination point, kind of like Charleston. It was a vacation city. It was a city where people did commerce. It was, you know, people from, came from all around to go to Ephesus. And he thought that'd be a great place to go and preach the gospel. Now, one day he goes, but he wants to go now. And evidently God says, no, you're not going to go. And so he closes the door twice on keeping him uh, to go to Ephesus. So what do you do when a door closes? Because I I think oftentimes uh, we find the guidance of the Lord uh, through closed doors as much as we do through open doors. So what do you do? How do you handle it? Let me give you... Uh, three quick thoughts. Number one, make sure the door is really closed, okay? Make sure, you know, it just might be a rusty hinge that needs a little WD-40, you know? Maybe it needs just a little shoulder into it, needs a little bit of effort. You need to make sure that the door is really closed. You know, I'm not proud to say this, but I flunked the driver's test for the driver's license, not the one that you, you know, you answer the questions, but the one where you drive the car. I flunked it twice before I got my first driver's license. Now, should I have said, well, it's not God's will for me to get a driver's license. I must not drive. No, I had to kind of put my shoulder to the, to the door and kind of push the door open a little bit. I told you guys before, when I felt a call into ministry, I thought that was to be a youth pastor. I got fired three times as a youth pastor. You know, what if I had just said, well, you know, ministry must not be God's will. No, the door was stuck. That, it just wasn't the right door. I needed to, to keep pushing and, and keep going. Well, you know, sometimes you just need to back the truck up and have another run at it. In fact, I sometimes pray, God, is this, if this isn't your will, close the door tight. Nail it, seal it, because I'm going to hit it with my shoulder. Make sure the door is closed tight. So make sure it's really closed. Second thing you do with a closed door is, is thank God for it. Thank God for it. Rather than cry over the lost opportunity and what could have been, do what the great theologian Forrest Gump leads us to do when he says, you know what? It's just one less thing. <laughs> have you know a closed door is just, just one less thing. Keep doing what you can. Look what Paul did. In Acts 16 and verse 8, the very next verse, it says, So instead, they went on through uh, Mycenae to the city of Troas. So instead, circle that phrase, so instead. So instead of what? Instead of complaining and moaning about circumstances, they used it to continue to do what they were doing. Okay, I can't go here, so I'm not going to cry about that. I'm just going to keep on going, keep on going. Acts 16 says, they went on. You know, I think about Paul when he was in prison. And uh, how do you know that prison is a closed door? And rather than complaining about, man, why am I in prison? What, what, what can I do here? You know, it's like Paul says, uh, maybe I should write something, you know. I, I don't know if anybody will ever read it, but, you know, I got all kinds of time. And so he 
continues to write. It's a lady in our church who uh, had a dream of being a teacher. And because of a whole series of closed doors and circumstances that presented it or prevented it, uh, she never was able to do it. She got married and she had children and did well with them. And uh, then she turned 40. And that's one of those numbers where you start thinking about what could have been, what might be, those types of things. Kids are in school, all of them are in school. And, and her life has changed. And she sat down with one of her friends and she said, you know what, I'm in a new season of life and I don't really know what's next. I don't know what I should do. And her friend said, well, why don't we talk about what's your dream? What do you think about it? She said, well, you know, way back then I, I wanted to be a teacher, but, you know, I, I really, I really can't, can't do that. It's, it's too late. Uh, if I went to school to be a teacher, it would take me six years. By the time I'm done, I'd be 46 years old. Her friend said, so in six years, you'll be 46. And at 46, you'll either be wondering what could have been, or at 46 years old, you'll begin to pursue your dream as a teacher. So, you know, don't cry over closed doors. Just do what you can. Keep doing what you can. Closed doors are an opportunity for God to do the next thing, and that's the third thing I want you to think about. It's to expect God to open another door. To expect God to open another door. Now, Paul, what did he do? He could have texted Barnabas, you know, and said, Hey, dude, <laughs> doors are closing over here, man. I'm feeling a little down. You got an open seat on your boat? No, instead, here's what happened. That night, Paul had a vision. He saw a man from Macedonia in northern Greece pleading with him, Come on over here and help us. And so we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, for we could only conclude that God was calling us to preach the good news there. See, God, Paul will ultimately get to Ephesus, but God has an alternate route for him to get there. A lot of you know last summer, I wanted to go to Ephesus too. <laughs> Debbie and I were going to go uh, to, uh, to the Holy Land and to Ephesus, you know, on a, on a cruise. And, and I wanted to go to Jerusalem, but Deb will tell you I really wanted to go to Ephesus because Paul's one of my heroes. And that was one of the places we were going to stop. And I, I was prepped for it. I'd gotten all kinds of books and all that kind of thing. And so here we are on a boat. And the boat catches fire. I've told the story before. And I wanted to go to Ephesus, but God had other plans. God wanted me to be a small group leader with a whole group of people I didn't know, most of them who didn't know Jesus. And so we spent, you know, about five or six days, some of it in Egypt. <laughs> Don't ever want to go back to Egypt. I'm not like the Israelites. Don't want to go there. But you know what? God had other plans. He wanted me to minister into uh, some other people's uh, lives. You know, just because the path isn't straight doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan. Sometimes God even takes paths that you've messed up on and he weaves it into his will. I think about Dave Ramsey. Anybody ever heard of Dave Ramsey? What do you know about Dave Ramsey? He's the money guy, right? Financial Peace University, here's how you do it. You know, cut up your credit cards and all this kind of thing. Well, how did he get that wisdom? Dave will tell you himself that he got off the path. He went broke, bankrupt. And when he did, he found... God's path for him. And God turned it into his life work. See, it's not about getting off the path. It's what you do while you're there. Let me give you a third ideal, and then we'll kind of wrap up this chapter. 
The ideal is this. God uses who I am to reach who I know. God uses who I am to reach who I know. That's the ideal. Let me explain it like this. Here's the mission. At Seacoast, we believe that we are all to live our lives missionally and incarnationally. Missionally means that God has chosen you, that you are blessed to be a blessing, that God has placed you exactly where you live, doing what you do around the people that you interact with because he wants to, to, for Jesus to live incarnationally through you so that people would see the word made flesh so that God could bring more and more people into his family, love them as a part of his family. And that, that's our mission. And ideally, here's what happens. God takes all of your life experience. God takes the gifts and abilities that he's planted within you and he uses them to reach people that you know and you're comfortable with and who are somewhat like you. In other words, God uses who I am to reach who I know. And you know what? That's what I thought would happen when Debbie and I moved here to Charleston 22 years ago to start this church. We'd spent eight and a half years in northern Illinois, and you've heard my stories. It was hard at first. But the breakthrough in that little church came when we started um, a college Bible study for college kids and young adults. I remember uh, we had two college kids in our whole church, and they came to me one Sunday morning, and they said, we want to start a, we want to start a Sunday school class for college kids. I said, great, who's going to teach it? They said, well, you are. I said, really? That's interesting. And, and so I did. And uh, rather than on a Sunday morning, we did it in a home, uh, somebody's home at night, and, and it started to grow, and, and then we rented out a little space downtown in this little town, and we created a little coffee house, and, and it started to grow there. I remember it was Thursday nights. We'd have a, a young adult Bible study, and, and, then it, and then we brought it to the church, and it grew, and, and it filled up this church, and we filled up uh, multiple services, mostly with young adult college students. We were all poor, you know, but we were radical and on fire and loved the Lord. And so I moved here to Charleston. I came on staff at Northwood Assembly to work with, guess what? Young adult singles, because that's what I knew how to do. And then a year later, we started Seacoast Church. And here's what I thought. I thought what we're going to do is we're going to reach all kinds of college students and young adults. You know, we've got College of Charleston not very far in the Citadel, and maybe they'll even drive down from Trident College and and from uh, Charleston Southern. And that's kind of the framework of what I thought the church would be. And in the early years, not a lot of anybody came, but especially no college students. Boy, that was confusing and frustrating to me because that's who God had created me, I thought, from past experience to reach and to use. In fact, I remember when our first college students were Greg and Tara Banks. They weren't Greg and Tara Banks at that point. They weren't married yet. But I remember them coming into our my office, and they had uh, I think they were leaders in FCA, and they wanted to know if there was a place for college kids at Seacoast Church. Because they looked around, and there weren't very many. And I said, yes, would you help us? Would you help us to create that? Now... You know, we've got hundreds, but back then we had none. And I was discouraged. I can remember God really speaking to me and saying, look around. Who who am I giving you influence with? And there were married couples, and most of them were older than us, and people who had 
a lot more money than we did, you know, and I, I really didn't think that I was uh, adequate. Plus, plus there were a lot of older singles, and uh, I really, you know, I'd never been older and, and single, got married pretty young, and uh, God, how can I minister to them? But God said, this is who I've called you to come and reach out to. See, the ideal is that God uses who I am to reach who I know, but the real deal is often this. God loves to challenge our stereotypes and our prejudices when choosing who we will minister to. Here's an interesting thought. I hope it's interesting to you. It was to me. Paul was a rabbi. He talks about his background, this great education, and he was zealous for God. He was a rabbi. And as a rabbi... Uh, Jewish men would pray every morning the same prayer. And here's the pray that, prayer that Paul prayed every morning. It went like this. God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a slave, or that I'm not a Gentile. Every morning, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a slave, that I'm not a Gentile. And if you read the background on that, you know, there's there's some justified reasons. Women had a harder lot in life, and so they were glad for that. And slaves, that's pretty obvious. And Gentiles, because God had blessed the Jewish people. And some people, you know, uh, they kind of got proud of that whole deal, that they were a man rather than a woman, and that they were free, and that they were Jewish. But anyway, that's what he prayed every day of his life. And so, who does God send him as his first three converts in Acts chapter 16. Let me read it to you. It says, We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across the island, uh, and the next day we landed in another town that I can't pronounce because I'm not Greek. And from there we reached Philippi, a major city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. And we stayed there for several days, and on the Sabbath day we went a little ways outside the city to a river bank where we uh, supposed that some people would meet for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had come together. And one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, and she was a merchant of expensive purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. And she was baptized along with other members of her household, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I'm faithful to the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us, until we did. And so his first convert was what? A woman. A wealthy one at that. So who do you think his second convert would be? Well, let's see. One day we were going down to the place of prayer and we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters and she followed along behind us shouting, and these men are servants of the Most High God. They've come... Uh, to tell uh, how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and he spoke to the demon within her. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, he said, and instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities of the marketplace. The whole city was in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted, they are teaching the people to do things that are against Roman customs. Okay, Now, his brand-new church at Philippi has two new members. Guess who they are? One of them is a woman, and the second one is a slave. All he lacks is a Gentile, right? 
The mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into the prison. The jailer ordered them to make sure that they didn't escape. And so he took no chances but put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, and the prison was shaken to the foundation. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He wanted to kill himself. Paul shouted, don't do it. We're here. Trembling with fear, the jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with your entire household. Then they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. The same hour the jailer washed their wounds and he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. And then he brought them into his house, set a meal before him, and he and his entire household rejoiced because all believed in God. So his first three converts are a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. God was teaching him. Look what he learned. Galatians 3.28, he says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians. You are all one in Jesus Christ. Well, where do you think he learned that? He learned that when God showed him, well, here's the ideal. I'll use you among people you know, you know, real smart, uh, zealous, very educated types. But in this situation, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come against your prejudices. You've been praying, thank you that I'm not a woman. Thank you I'm not a slave. Thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Well, that's going to be your new church. God sent him the most unlikely people. Let me ask you this. Who are the unlikely people in your world? Who are they? They might be like Lydia, the rich. You know, right now it's very hip and cool to love poor people, and we should. But you know, Everybody, those uh, far from Christ, I mean, if, uh, are, are doing things for the poor, and that's just, you know, that's, that's popular these days. But these days, it's righteous to hate rich people. You know, a Vanity Fair poll recently said, if you had to choose, which one of the following men would you be the most likely to forgive? Tiger Woods, Charlie Sheen, John Edwards, Chris Brown, or Bernie Madoff? <laughs> Tiger Woods won. In fact, Tiger was five times more likely to be forgiven than John Edwards. And nobody in the poll said they would forgive Bernie Madoff, not even if he asked for forgiveness. He's the guy, the rich guy that ripped a bunch of people off. Well, who's somebody in your world? And you're counting them out as needing the ministry of the gospel because the decimal point on their, you know, their paycheck is way to the right of what yours is. They've got all they need. They don't need to have what I have to give. You know, they might be like Lydia. And God might be dealing with the prejudice on your part. And He's brought them into your life. The unlikely in your world might be the broken. You know, the second person that Paul came into uh, uh, encounter was the demon-possessed slave girl. She's not a likely candidate to be a part of his church, you know. Hey, we need some children's workers. Would you? No, no, we don't think you'd be one, you know. She's too broken, too broken. I love the stories of people who are too broken, but they come to Jesus and it changed their lives. People like Annie Lobert, who was a prostitute, and someone shared Christ with her and she formed a ministry called Hookers for Jesus. I like that. 
Or how about Roy Radcliffe, who was a pastor that got a call from a prison that said there was an inmate who wanted to be baptized who had accepted Jesus. And so he came and he discipled the inmate and finally baptized him. The inmate's name was Jeffrey Dahmer. Fifteen life terms, killed 17 people. Way too broken. But God, God used this pastor to bring him to Jesus. Or how about Brian Welch, the lead guitar player of the heavy metal band Korn? Uh, drug addict, sex, the whole nine yards. He says he was way too far gone. Somebody shared Christ with him. He says, well, I was at the worst time of my life. I felt heaven come down and touch me. And because of that, I'll never be the same. So who in your life do you consider to be too broken, too far gone? They'll never break the self-destructive cycle. Maybe you know somebody right now. How about the ordinary? Philippian jailer was an army vet, blue-collar kind of guy, no great story about demon possession. You know, it's easy to miss these kinds of people in our lives. They're all around us. We have little day-to-day encounters all the time. You know what? If we ignore them, then we forget the fact that we're on mission every day, that there are no coincidences, that God brings these serendipity events into our lives. Maybe God wants to use your Starbucks barista to plant churches in India. Maybe the person sitting in the seat next to you on the plane needs encouragement from God to build their marriage. Maybe the custodian at work is this close to coming to Jesus and just needs somebody to to help just a little bit. Or maybe the staff girl at the gym might one day lead a small group of women that makes a big difference. See, the three people that Paul encountered did more than just convert. They became the foundation for a church in Philippi that became an example for churches of all time. And when you're thinking about the unlikely people in your life, the unlikely disciples, don't dream too small. God wants to do more than convert them. He may want to use you and them to lead a movement that changes the world. See, that's the real and the ideal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. God, I thank you for this incredible story that you weave, the story of Jesus and the redemption story, the story of people like Paul and how you used an unlikely candidate to Uh, spread the message and the story of me and the story of everybody in this place. And now this weekend, as we um, come to grips with the ideal and the real in our lives, I just pray that you would speak to us and that you would give us the boldness to just respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.